Let's pray together. You know, the words of that very simple chorus come straight out of Scripture where in Hebrews 12 it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, we should lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. And Father, that's why we come back each and every Sunday. It's why we come back and sing these songs of worship and praise. It's why we come back uh, to the table of communion to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Father, it's why we gather up in circles to pray for one another. It's why we open your word to, to preach and to teach and to listen to what it says. Father, because your word calls us back again and again to fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, we know it's true, we know it's how you've called us to live, and yet everything else in our lives competes for our attention. Lord, exactly what Tim was saying to us just a few minutes ago, stuff competes for our attention, it distracts and divides us. We rarely feel ready for anything that comes our way, and it's why we must continue to come back together, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, I thank you that you've given us that opportunity already, and I pray that what we are going to do now to open the scriptures for the preaching of your word, Father, will only build upon and amplify what we have celebrated already, that there is a God in heaven who loved us enough to send us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be called children of God. Behold what incredible love has been poured out upon us. So, Father, as we open your word now, I pray you'd give us open minds, quiet hearts, attentive spirits and a readiness to hear and to obey what your word says. Father, not because I have something important to say, but because you, through preaching, the preaching of your word, speak to our hearts in personal ways. So, as always at this time, Father, we ask that by the power and the ministry of your wonderful Holy Spirit, you would guide us in truth, you would guard us from error, you would deliver us from the baggage we carried in with us, and that you would help us to see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And may we leave in a little while rejoicing because we had that chance to sit at your feet, to fix our eyes on Jesus, and to rest in the power and the love of our almighty God. It is for Jesus' sake and in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, as always at this time, we're going to dismiss the boys and girls for Children's Church. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, uh, your children are welcome to participate. It's for the five-year-olds up through the second graders, and if they want to get up right now and make their way out the back door, uh, they can go spend some time together in God's Word, which is exactly what we're going to do as well. So I'm going to invite you to grab your Bible and take it out. And if you turn in it with me, I want to read God's Word here right away this morning. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 2. For the past several weeks, we have been uh, beginning to work our way through uh, the story of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We're doing it under the theme of following the Son, walking through Mark's gospel, seeing who Jesus was, what he did, what his ministry was all about, and of course, as always, what difference and impact that can have in our lives. So make your way to Mark chapter 2, begin reading God's word in just a moment, and And then we'll dig in and in our remaining minutes together, see what it is that that I believe the Lord would have us to understand. This morning's reading is going to begin in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. We're going to finish chapter 2, then I'm going to move right on into chapter 3, where the, the same scene just continues, though there is a chapter break. Reading down through the sixth verse of Mark chapter 3. 
Where again, if you'll follow along in your Bible, this is what the Word of God says. Mark writes that it happened that he, Jesus, was passing through grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, to Jesus, Look, why are they, your disciples, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. He then entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they, again, this would be the Pharisees, were watching him to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he, Jesus, said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, again, now addressing the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, Grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So begin this morning, I want to ask you a question, and this is most definitely not a shout your answer back at the preacher kind of question. It's simply something I want you to think momentarily about in your own mind and heart, and it's this. What makes you angry? What in this life makes you angry? And I want you to understand when I ask you the question, when I'm talking about anger, I'm not talking about mild irritation, traffic, uh, Dinner is cold. Uh, Somebody didn't show up on time. That's the stuff of life that irritates us. I'm talking about anger. I'm talking about hot, simmering rage in your heart. I'm talking about the kind of thing that when you see it in person, on the internet, you see it, witness it on TV. Maybe it's something personal. Maybe it's something on the other side of the world. But everything within you, in your heart and your soul, rises up and wants you to shout, stop it. Stop it. It shouldn't be that way. Things like that shouldn't happen. What makes you that kind of angry? Is it injustice? Is it racism? Is it exploitation? Is it violence? Is it abuse? What is it? Just think for a moment about when you see it, and maybe there's more than one thing, but the way that you feel the anger when you see it. And here's why I'm asking the question. The reason I ask you to go there with me momentarily in your mind and heart is because that is how Mark, the author of this gospel, tells us that the Pharisees felt in verse 6. Look again at verse 6 in your Bible, the last verse of this morning's reading. It says, when the Pharisees saw what Jesus had done, they went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. That was a political group that was no happier to see Jesus than they were, against him as to how they might destroy him. 
And the reason I know they were filled with rage in that is because if you read Luke, the gospel of Luke, his account of the same story, that's exactly what it says. It says the Pharisees were filled with rage. The Greek term means they were furious, literally out of their senses with Jesus. And what he had done, why? Well, if you look again at the text, it tells us exactly why they felt this way. It was because, according to Mark's gospel, number one, here's why they were filled with rage. First of all, because Jesus' disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath. And second of all, because on that presumably same Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and healed a man with a withered or a paralyzed, some sort of non-functioning problem with his hand. And as baffling as it may be to us, and it should be, As baffling as it may be to us, their anger toward Jesus over those two things was so intense that they wanted and they decided they were going to kill him. That's a head-scratcher, right? That's hard to understand. But if, if we dig just a little bit deeper into the scriptures and Bible history, we begin perhaps, although we may not grasp it, but at least to understand why they felt that way. And, and here's essentially, in, in just a few words, why. Because the deal with these Pharisees, and if you don't know the Pharisees, they were, at that time in history, the ruling religious authorities in Israel. They had religious power, they had political power, and in almost every sense, they were unquestioned. They held all the cards over the people of God. And at this point in their history, at the time Jesus arrived on the scene, they had long ago, if indeed they ever had done this, they had long ago ceased functioning as shepherds of God's people, as caretakers of the spiritual needs and realities of, 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 Israel, of, Israel, of the Jewish life in Israel. And instead, what they had become, when they stopped functioning as shepherds over God's people, what they had sort of traded that in there, what they had become instead was sort of the first century equivalent of what I would call religion incorporated. They had become a bureaucracy. They had become, we love this word today, the establishment, right? And they wanted to protect what they had. They wanted to protect the power that they possessed. And so when they saw, began to see Jesus going around, and he's healing people, and he's performing miracles, and he's saying wonderful things, and he's loving, unlovable, and untouchable people, presumably that's what their, uh, that's what their society and their culture told them, they realized Jesus is threatening the operation, right? Jesus is threatening to unravel our system. He is threatening to bankrupt, literally and figuratively, everything we have staked our lives and careers upon. And what I want to show you in the time we have left together is how that happened. How spiritual shepherds ended up with that kind of attitude that they wanted to destroy Jesus completely And of course, along the way, as always, see if we can understand why it matters to us. And as I've looked at this passage, at the story that Mark gives us here, I see at least three, certainly there were probably more, but at least three choices the Pharisees, somewhere along the way, whether consciously or not, but collectively they had made, that made them move from spiritual shepherds to religion incorporated, and they are as follows, number one. The first choice Mark suggests that they had made somewhere along the way is that with their spiritual position, with their religious authority, they had made the choice to go for regulation over relationship. They had chosen regulation 
over relationship. Look again at verses 23 and 24. It says, It happened that Jesus was passing through grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are your men doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now a word about the Sabbath. The deal with the Sabbath in, in the Old Testament and in the lifetime of Jesus is that Back in the Old Testament, when God gave the Ten Commandments, and again, some of you may know this, others of you may not, but one of the Ten Commandments God gave was a command to to observe and honor the Sabbath. And, And what that meant was this, one day out of every seven, God's people were to rest. They were to rest from their work. They were to rest from their labor. They were stop, to stop doing the stuff they did all week long and, and take a, a break from all of that effort. That is to say that rather than tending to the land, rather than tending to their businesses, rather than working on the house or whatever it is that they uh, did the other six days, they were to step away from all of that and focus on relational refreshment. They were to be refreshed uh, with, in their relationship with God through worship, and they were to be refreshed in their relationships with one, another's through, with one another through fellowship. They were to focus on that. And when God gave the, the Sabbath commandment, he meant in every way for it to be a blessing to his people. But since every group, and you know this, all right, if you've ever been a part of, group of, of a group of any kind, since every group always has some people in it who think you can't do the math for yourself, and particularly in Christian circles, there, there is often someone who just enjoys giving the Holy Spirit a helping hand, what the Pharisees had done is they'd taken that one commandment, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, one day out of seven, stop from, rest from your labor, stop your work. What the Pharisees had done, because they were now running Religion Incorporated, is they had taken that one commandment, rest on the Sabbath, and they had come up with and and incorporated into law 39 specific kinds of work you weren't allowed to do, just so you'd know right? 39 kinds of work. And one of those kinds of work was reaping or harvesting your field at, at harvest time. And and they were so serious, and they were so intent on enforcing these rules, that when, look in your Bible at verse 23, when in verse 23, they saw Jesus' disciples picking a few heads of grain on the Sabbath. They were pulling them off the stalk, rubbing them together in their hands, blowing away the chaff, and eating the grain, uh, the good part of it, they pounced. And, And in their own words, what they said was this, God told us to tell you to knock it off. That was their message. God told us to tell you, stop it, not allowed. Now, never mind the fact that back in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 23, 25 to be specific, God had specifically said in in his law that what they were doing was absolutely fine. You could do it any day of the week. If you were hungry and in need, you could pick a few heads of grain and eat it to sustain yourself. The law said that was okay. And, and never mind the fact that Jesus then cited precedent as well, all right? He's got law and precedent. He says in verses 25 and 26, hey, hey guys, have you never read, of course, implying that they had, what David did when he was in need and his, he and his companions became hungry? They went into the tabernacle and, and they ate the consecrated bread that, that, that no one but the priests are supposed to eat. And they survived. There were no lightning bolts, all right? The temple didn't, or the tabernacle didn't collapse down on their heads. God said it was fine because they were in need. Guys, you have read the story, right? You remember 
But that didn't matter, not to the Pharisees. Because you see, here's the thing with the Pharisees. To the Pharisees' religion, and you want to remember this, to the Pharisees' religion was all about one thing, order. Order. And order overruled, order trumped everything. Order trumped refreshment. Order trumped human need. Order trumped ordinary common sense, the doing of good to someone who's in a jam. You see, to them, order, or or the word we're using here, regulation, trumped relationship because they bought a lie. And the lie they had bought is one all of us, myself included, susceptible to. You know what the lie was that they had bought? that made them this way, the lie that holiness can be legislated. The lie that holiness can be legislated. What do I mean? That you can power your way to spiritual maturity through a a combination of doing and denial. Here's the things I will do. Here's the things I won't do. And as long as I follow the plan, right, I'll mature. I'll become holy. Uh, To put it in a far more conversational way, they had bought the lie that's so easy to buy into that the better I behave, the happier God will be. That's what they thought. The happier God will be. But can I tell you something? (laughs) It simply isn't so. That's not the way it works. And here's why. Because what regulation does... If, if I'm going to, if my thought is, whether I would ever actually say it or not, that what I do, that the rules I keep and the things that I abstain from are what are going to automatically make me grow. You know what I've just done? I've pushed God out of the equation. It's up to me. The things I will do and the things I won't do. And as long as I check the box and as long as I walk the line, then, then it's going to be just, but no, that's not the way it works. It pushes God out of the equation and it puts me in the center Regulation puts, pushes God out of the equation. And when we get ourselves at the center of the relationship or the equation, all of our other relationships begin to suffer. And we dry up. And we become difficult like Pharisees. And what Jesus is, is, is simply saying here by, by citing the story of David is he's saying, guys, you seem to have forgotten. It's the other way around. Pursue a relationship with God in worship and in prayer together with God's people and, and on your own as well. Pursue the relationship. Seek him. He said it another way in another place. Seek first my kingdom. Seek first my righteousness. And you know what the next line says? And everything else will be taken care of. That's my translation, but that's what he said. And you'll find if you seek him first, if you pursue the relationship in worship and in prayer, in the reading of God's word, guess what? Over time, just like watching your child grow, you will begin to find that not perfectly and not consistently, but the direction will be towards spiritual maturity. The direction will be toward relational intimacy. And the direction will be toward deeper holiness. But the Pharisees had chosen regulation over relationship and they'd gone the other direction entirely. It's the first mistake they made. It's the first choice they made. They made a second one as well as we move into chapter 3. A second reason the Pharisees had gone from spiritual shepherds to religion incorporated is not only had they chosen regulation over relationship, they had secondly chosen custom over compassion. They had made the choice to go for custom over compassion. Because when the first two verses of chapter 3 say this, I want you to follow along again in your Bibles or read them. That he entered again into a synagogue. 
And, and a man was there whose hand was withered, a man in need. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, there are a couple of things in those two verses that are really, really easy to miss, but that we shouldn't. One of which is this, that already at this point in the story, the beginning of chapter 3, the Pharisees were already convinced that Jesus was a miracle worker. They were convinced that he could heal this man. Because look at your Bible. It says they were watching him to see not if he could heal him on the Sabbath. They, they already apparently believed they'd seen him. They were looking to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Is he going to use that power again today? That's one thing we should see. The other is this. Based on verse 2, it seems pretty clear to me that they had not come to the synagogue that day to worship. Right? What does it say at the end of verse 2? It says they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they could rejoice in the Lord and God is so good. No. So that they could accuse him. It, it's a legal term. They could bring charges of blasphemy so that they could put him to death. That's what they wanted. You see how mixed up their hearts were? See how, how they had confused everything about what it means to, to relate to and walk with God? Here they were. I mean, think about it. On the Lord's day, in the Lord's house, wearing robes that declared, we do the Lord's work, right? We are the representative. We are the men of the moment. In the Lord's house, on the Lord's day, we're doing the Lord's work. And yet, their fanatical devotion to religious custom. And, and the custom in this case was specifically this. See, another one of the things they'd incorporated into the law about the Sabbath was that it was only okay to heal someone on the Sabbath, however you were going to go about that healing, if their life was in danger. All right? So if they're breathing their last, if they're bleeding buckets, if, if something devastating has been happening, well, then we'll give them our attention. But if you broke your arm, wait till Sunday, right? If, if, if you bumped your head, hang on just a little bit longer. It was only good to show mercy if someone was going to die. And that was their idea. That was their custom. And, and because they were devoted to that custom, they looked at this man and said, his life's not in danger, this can wait. It had crushed, it's evident here, crushed any spirit of compassion that they may have had toward others in need. And, and worse still, they seem not at all troubled, not in the least, over the fact that they were literally sitting in the synagogue plotting murder when they were supposed to be directing people to worship. I call that a problem, right? Not good now, what I don't want anybody to do today is misunderstand, because what I'm not saying, say, he's not saying. What I'm not saying is that spiritual and religious customs and traditions and, and practices don't matter. What I am saying, say, what he is saying. What I am saying, and I'm saying this, let me tell you, as much from personal experience uh, before any sort of observation of others, is that I'm pretty good at confusing the two right? My preferred customs with inspired biblical conviction. What I've noticed about myself, and I've observed in a few others, perhaps I think this may actually be true of us all, is that we just have this incredible knack to elevating my personal preferences to thus saith the Lord, right? And then using that as a stick to measure everyone else's spiritual life. We have an incredible knack. I have an incredible knack 
for thinking that what I like, and let's get specific, maybe we're talking about the songs we sing. Maybe we're talking about the manner in which we pray. Maybe it's, it's the style from which we preach the word or teach the word, or it's something else about corporate, spiritual, and, 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 and life and, and devotion to the Lord. And we, we think that what I like, we go to the, that's what God accepts. But he doesn't accept the other stuff. And, and we get that mixed up, and that's what the Pharisees had done here. And because they had, when we do that, when I confuse what I like with what God accepts, or I declare that what I like is what God accepts and what you like he doesn't, what I've done is what the Pharisees did here. I have choked compassion out of our relationship. That's what had happened here. They're looking at a guy with the withered hand. They're looking at another guy who they know has the power to heal him and say, not today, it's against the rules. Among many other things, that shows a lack of what? Of compassion. And when that happens, what we're left with, again, like the Pharisees, is religion incorporated. They'd chosen regulation over relationship. They'd chosen custom over compassion. One more thing, and then I promise we're done. They had chosen, in verses 3, 4, and 5, the reason they were running religion incorporated is because they'd gone for security over humility. They'd chosen security over humility. Because when verses 3 and 4 say this, Jesus essentially calls their bluff. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. So now you picture the scene, the synagogue, however big it may have been. Everybody's gathered. The Pharisees, because they're in charge, are sitting in the front row. Jesus is going to throw down right in the middle of the room. It's Jesus, the healer, and, and the man with the withered hand. He calls him up. He says, come forward. And then he said, not to the man, he said to them. He asked them a question. Is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? Now, when Jesus asked that question, the answer should have been obvious and immediate, Right? Well, of course, Jesus, the right thing to do on the, ha- on the Sabbath is to do good and to heal. We shouldn't kill any day, but, but certainly not on the Sabbath, not do harm on any day, certainly not the Sabbath. That should have been the answer, to do good and, and save lives. Of course, Jesus. As Tim Keller writes, and the reason that's so is because Keller says the Sabbath, that's what it was all about. It was about restoring the diminished. It was about replenishing the drained. It was about repairing the broken. And Keller concludes, therefore, to heal the man's shriveled hand was to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. But look at verse 4. Jesus asks the question, and then the final phrase says this, but they kept silent. And can I tell you, it's not because they were stumped. It's because they were proud. It's because they were proud. Because to them, they understood, if we give Jesus not just the answer he wants, but the answer that we know is right, we will be admitting without having to say so that we're wrong. If we say Jesus is right, we are admitting we are wrong. And that would have cost them dearly. It would have cost them their power. It would have cost them their prestige. It would have cost them their their welfare. It would have cost them ultimately their security. Everything they built their life around, being a Pharisee and having holding all the cards, Jesus would have just chipped away at that. The truth would have just chipped away at that. That's what it meant. It would be to acknowledge that the old to which they belonged and in which they trusted was passing away and that in Jesus something new and much better had come. And I think we all know because we've all been there in one way or another that to do that would have required exercising one of the most difficult human dispositions of all, the disposition of humility to take the lower place, to take the place of a servant and a listener and a learner, 
And that's why verse 5 says that it was after looking around at them with anger and grieved at their literally stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was restored. Now, there's something very interesting about verse 5, and I didn't know it until a couple of days ago. Verse 5 is the only place in all four Gospels where we are expressly and explicitly told Jesus got angry with someone else. Now, you see it other places, but it only says it here. This is the one place in all four Gospels where the word, the, the attitude of anger. Now, at the beginning, the Pharisees are angry. Now it's Jesus' turn, right? He's angry. And the one time in all four Gospels where we're specifically the word anger is used to describe Jesus is here, which suggests to me it's kind of a big deal, right? Here's what made Jesus hot. Here's what got righteously so under Jesus' skin. What angered him was this, that the Pharisees were willingly, knowingly choosing to resist what they knew in their hearts to be true. That the right thing that day, that the best thing that day was showing mercy to a man in need, whatever the price tag was that was attached to it. That's what mattered. But to them, that price was too high. The cost was too much to bear And what it really came down to, and and I know in my life, in my story, it has come down to this time and time again as well. To the Pharisees in this moment, it was more important to maintain, listen to me, I promise we're almost done, but listen. It was more important to maintain the security of being right than it was to exercise the humility of being kind. Man, do we struggle with that sometimes. I'd rather be right than I would be kind. I'd rather be correct than I would to show compassion. It's hard, man, it's hard. And that's where they were. It's a trap we can still fall into today, even in our relationships, and I think especially in our relationships with one another as followers of Jesus Christ. Because we got the truth, right? And we're right, and we want to be right, and we want everybody to know we're right. And I want you to know I'm right, and I'll opt against being kind if I can show you that I'm right. And I end up as a Pharisee, and I need to repent. And when we realized that that's what was going on here, that Israel's spiritual life was such a mess because their leaders had chosen regulation, custom, and security over relationship, compassion, and humility, we better understand what Jesus meant in verses 27 and 28 when he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The day was made to be a blessing to you. You were not made to serve the nameless sort of establishment of the day. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You know what Jesus was saying there? Saying, guys, the reason I'm telling you this is because I invented the Sabbath, right? And and that was a not-so-veiled claim to be God, and they understood that's what he was saying. I invented the day. I came up with the idea. So what he's saying in verses 27 to 28 is because I invented it, I get to decide how it's used. I get to call the shots today. And and what I want, my design about this day is that everything you do on it magnifies my love for all people in every possible way. And in that sense, the message to them and to us in all of the controversy over the Sabbath here, is much less about what certain people don't do one day a week and about the way the people of God are supposed to live every single day of their lives in relationship with God and with one another. And that is why the big idea of the message this morning is this. 
that truly the best thing we can do for one another as believers is each of us live our lives for the glory of God. Not for the glory of myself, not for the glory of my system, not for the glory of my preferences, but for him. And if you live for the glory of God as best as he enables you to do so, and I live for the glory of God as he enables me to do so, guess what? We're going to get along. And God's going to be glorified. But it is about relationship, compassion, and humility. Father, they're easy words to say. They're difficult attitudes and dispositions to live out. But your word says the Holy Spirit lives within us. Your word says we are new creations in Jesus Christ. Your word says that I and that we have the power today to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, to live our lives for the glory of God. Oh God, help us to do it. Father, take the things of truth spoken in this place this morning, all throughout this service, and seal them to our hearts and take all the rest and let it slip away so that we leave savoring and rejoicing in Jesus only. And in his name we pray, amen.